Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Luke. The Listener's Commentary is a crowd-funded Bible teaching effort that is made possible by the generosity of people like you who donate to support this ministry. That way we can give this resource away for completely free so that more and more people have access to it. And so thanks a ton to each and every one of you who donate to make the listener's commentary possible. And if you've been blessed in some way by the listener's commentary, if you've seen the fruit of it in your life or in your uh, Bible study group's life, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters who make this possible so that the listener's commentary can continue to grow, continue to expand, so that some of the other things we want to do with the listener's commentary can come to fruition. So thanks a ton for those of you who support it already, those of you who will support this in the future. All right, in this session, we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And the opening phrase ties this section directly to the previous one in chapter 11. And so as we look at the context, we need to make sure we pay attention to that kind of connection. So Luke 12 opens with, under these circumstances. And that looks backwards to the end of chapter 11. And at the end of chapter 11 we get this description of how the antagonism towards Jesus from the Pharisees and the scribes has really ramped up significantly, that they're constantly watching him and interrogating him. They're hoping to find some way to trap him. So under these circumstances, while all of that's going on, we get this section. And what we get is Jesus instructing his disciples about being fearless in their allegiance to Jesus. That's really the heart of Luke 12, 1 through 12, is this fearless allegiance to Jesus. So let's read and look at the details. It says this, Under these circumstances, and after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. Notice that. So the antagonism from the religious leaders is ramping up and growing significantly, and yet thousands of people are coming to hear Jesus, so much so that that we got a little crowd control almost issue, right? Like people are almost stepping on it. There's just tons of people jostling to try to get in there to hear Jesus. And so big crowds, lots of people. Jesus really, again, he's focusing on his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And so he began saying to his disciples, first of all. And so he's going to instruct his disciples in view of all this large crowds of people coming to check him out, antagonism from the scribes and the Pharisees. He teaches his disciples and he says this initially, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The previous section was all about that, was about the the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, how they cleaned the outside of the cup, i.e. they were full of religious activity, Uh, but they left the inside of the cup untouched, unclean. That's what the previous section was all about. And so we recapture that here. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Watch out for that. Not just watch out for the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Watch out for that same sort of leaven polluting you as well, right? Like you make sure you don't stumble into hypocrisy. You make sure the inside of your cup is clean. And, And so in view of the circumstances with this tension with the Pharisees, with Jesus calling them out for their hypocrisy, Jesus now teaching his disciples. And what he's going to do is he's going to go on and give really a call to fearless allegiance and deep-seated allegiance to himself. Verse 2 says, Now there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, 
and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And the question with verses 2 and 3 is this. Does, does this refer to the Pharisees and their hypocrisy? Or does it refer to the message about Jesus the disciples are told they should proclaim? And commentators seem to be kind of split on that. And I guess if you have to choose between one of the others of those, I tend to think it probably goes with the hypocrisy in verse 1. But the more I've thought about it, the more I, I think that perhaps we should see verses 2 and 3 sort of as just like a general aphorism, a general maxim, a general saying that makes the point, hidden things will be made known. That's really what verse 2 says. Um, Nothing is covered that will not be revealed, hidden that will be not being made known. I think that's just like a general saying, um, and Jesus then is going to develop that in what follows. In other words, what he seems to be getting at is, look, the reality is facts will come out. Truth will win the day. Hypocrites will be unmasked, and the truth about Jesus will go public. And so I'm not so sure we have to choose um, between, is this about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, or the message about Jesus, the truth about Jesus. I, I think it's kind of a both-and situation, as Jesus is just taking a general truth about life. Facts will come out. Truth will win the day. Uh, and applying it to the situation with him and the Pharisees and his ministry and the disciples and all that. I think that's how this works here. And that seems to fit what's going on in the following context. And so, in view of this fact, in view of the fact that Look, truth is going to win the day eventually. How should disciples live? Even in view of lies, even in view of hypocrisy and duplicity and opposition, how should disciples live since you know that hypocrites will be unmasked, the truth about Jesus will go public, facts will, will come out? How should you live as a disciple? Well, that's what we get in verses 4 and following. Now I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed someone, has the power to throw that person into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, there's some clarity work we got to do on the translation, but the main point here is about who should you fear. Should you fear those who oppose you, fear those who appear oppose God's kingdom and oppose Jesus and oppose your allegiance to Jesus, or should you fear God? That's the general uh, topic that we're dealing with in verses 4 and 5, and Jesus' point is, ultimately, my friends, you should fear God. Don't fear man who can only harm the body and they can't harm the soul. Fear God. That's the point. But we need to do a little clarity work here on the exact translation. Verse 5 says this, I will warn you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed someone, has the power to throw that person into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, fear God. But the way it's translated makes it sound like God has done the killing. Um, after he has killed someone. It's just, that's not the way it really is written. Uh, the literal translation is um, after the to kill thing. In other words, after the killing, after someone has been killed. It's not saying God killed the person as the translation here words it. That's just not the way the Greek actually uh, is stated. In other words, what he's saying is after someone has been killed, 
There's somebody greater than than that who has the power and the authority to cast that person into hell. So don't just fear the person who can kill you, uh, kill your body. Fear the one who actually has authority over your eternal destination, namely fear God. That's the, the, the point. There's a fate worse than physical death. And there's someone in charge of that. And that's the person ultimately you should fear. And so when you're when you're following Jesus and you're following his kingdom and, and hostility and opposition arises, as is happening now towards Jesus from the scribes and the Pharisees, who should you fear? Don't be afraid of the person who can kill you. Be afraid of the one who actually is in charge of your eternal destination. Well, from there then, Jesus offers the reassurance from uh, some reassurance to them about how valuable they are to God. Like, fear God because you actually matter to him. That's the point of verses 6 and 7. So he says, Are five sparrows not sold for two coins? And yet not one of them has gone unnoticed in the sight of God. And so five sparrows, two coins, like, they're not like they're not worth that much. They're cheap, right? And yet God takes notice even of them. Um, and so he says, um, verse seven, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Like God so notices you, so pays attention to you that he even knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. So he says, do not fear. You are more valuable than a great number of sparrows. Like you're more valuable than then five sparrows, a hundred sparrows, a thousand sparrows. You're more valuable to God than that, so don't fear. Notice that fearing God leads to not fearing the rest of stuff in life because of your value to God, because of how noticed and seen you are by God. And so who's the one that you should ultimately live in fear of, live with to honor, live to respect, whose opinion matters? You live for God alone. And guess what? When you fear God, it leads to not fearing because God values you and God will care for you and God sees you. So if you're loyal to Jesus and you publicly acknowledge him, even in the face of opposition, guess what? Jesus will acknowledge you in the presence of angels. In other words, Jesus will acknowledge you to God himself. Verse 8, now I say to you, everyone who confesses me before people the Son of Man, which is a royal title, like King Jesus, will also confess him before the angels of God. And so, in the whole context of everything he's saying, because facts will come out, because the truth about Jesus will be known, because hypocrites will be unmasked, you live for God alone, and even if there's opposition, you acknowledge Jesus. You confess him before people. And if you do that, then King Jesus will confess you right before the angels of God. In other words, in the presence of the angels to God himself, Jesus is going to say, that one's loyal to me. That one's one of my uh, my people. Um, and not only that, but if someone opposes and denies Jesus, guess what? They'll be denied in heaven. So verse 9, but the one who denies me before people will be, not, will be denied before the angels of God, will be denied uh, in the presence of the angels to God himself. And I think what we're seeing here in verses 8 and 9 is the general truth of verses 2 and 3 play out. Facts are facts. The truth will come out. Um, who really is loyal to God? Who really is loyal to his Messiah? Who's really a part of his kingdom? Well, it's the one who confesses Jesus before people. 
And that's going to come out, and that's going to come out in the presence of God himself. And so he says in verse 10, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Uh, But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, a lot of energy has been given and expended trying to figure out exactly this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned here. And so the only humble approach is to acknowledge that, that this is this has been a lot of ink and a lot of time trying to figure it out. And it's, for whatever reason, not exactly obvious what Jesus means uh, by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, this statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is connected to the accusation that Jesus works miracles and casts out demons by Satan's power. Well, that accusation has already showed up in Luke's gospel, showed up a little earlier, but it's been one of the things that has led to this increasing opposition. And so it's still active among his opponents. It's still part of the overarching context of this section. And so I think we need to have that in mind as part of our understanding of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It seems to mean in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though the connection is a little more tenuous, that um, that to attribute Jesus's miraculous power, which is doing by the work of the Spirit that empowered him at his baptism, to attribute that to Satan himself. That seems to be part of what it means to blaspheme the Spirit here. I also think we need to put ourselves in the sandals of his first hearers. His first hearers were Jews, and the Old Testament law, their law, had things to say about blaspheming God. For example, Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31 says, Anyone who sins defiantly, whether a native-born or a foreigner, whether a Jew or a foreigner who lives among you, blasphemes the Lord. So if you sin defiantly, you blaspheme Yahweh and must be cut off from their people because they've despised the Lord's word and they've broken his commands. They surely must be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. Or Leviticus 24, verses 15 and 16 says, And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. And so Jews, because of their law, understood the serious nature of of blaspheming God and the severity of the penalty. Like, there's no atonement for them. Their guilt remains, right? Their sin remains for them. In fact, that Numbers 15 passage is actually said in contrast with uh, sins that are unintentional. There's a sacrifice of atonement for that. But sins that are defiant and intentional, no atonement for that. And that seems to be what Jesus is getting at here. It almost seems as if, as if Jesus is speaking to them uh, in the terms of Numbers 15 and putting, like speaking against Jesus in the category of the unintentional sin. Okay, I look like an ordinary Jew. I am an ordinary Jew. I could understand how, you know, I came from Nazareth. I grew up in, in this neck of the woods. I could understand how you could speak against me. But when you look at my works and you look at my miracles and you look at me casting out demons and you attribute the work of God's powerful spirit in and through me to the, to the work of Satan, that's like a defiant sin from Numbers 15. And there's, there's like no 
atonement for that. Like you're stuck with that. Your your sin, your guilt remains for that. That seems to be what Jesus is getting at here. So it seems like he's saying uh, to take what clearly is the work of God by his spirit through Jesus, seen in miracles and casting out demons, and in defiance of God, attribute that work to the work of the devil. Well, that's the kind of thing there's no atonement for. Uh, that seems to be what Jesus means. Now, again, it's not 100% clear, and a lot of energy has been spent with that. But when you put it in the context of the Old Testament law, that makes sense, and that seems to be what Jesus is getting at. Now, of course, I think the old adage is true, that if you're worried about whether you've committed the blasphemy of the Spirit, you probably haven't. I think that's sage advice, and we should remember that. The main point Jesus is making in verse 10 is, look, if you, if you just are going to speak against and slander Jesus himself, fine, uh, all good, that will be forgiven you. In the context of number 15, that's like uh, an unintentional sin. But if you're going to speak against God's powerful work being done through Jesus, that's defiance against God. There's no atonement for that. That seems to be the point. And remember, all of this is set in the context of reassuring faithful disciples that confessing Jesus means acknowledgement in heaven, even if opposed on earth. So again, the truth will come out. Those who persist in defiance of God and blaspheming his spirit's work in and through you, they will be dealt with. Facts will come out. The truth will be known, right? God knows those who are his. It'll all get sorted out. So you stay faithful to God. And it's said in that context of reassuring them, reassuring disciples of all of that. So Jesus says in verses 11 and 12, now, when they bring you before the synagogues, and the officials and the authorities, here's that opposition theme, right? When they bring you before these people, don't worry about how or what you're going to speak in your defense or what to say. For the Holy Spirit himself will teach you in that very hour what you're supposed to say. And so the Spirit's going to be at work in you. He's going to be at work among you. And if they're going to resist the Spirit's work, that's on them. God will sort that out. And in those moments of crisis for which you could never prepare, right? Those moments when you're called to, to speak for Jesus and you could never prepare for it because you're being brought in their context before synagogue officials and uh, Jewish authorities or whatever else it is in our context. In those moments of crisis for which we as disciples could never prepare, the Spirit will lead us into what we should say. So, when opposition arises, when people speak against Jesus, when people speak against the work of Jesus in and through his disciples, how should disciples live? Well, the point of this section, Luke 12, 1 through 12, is that disciples should be loyal and faithful to Jesus at all costs. They should fear God more than man, and they should know that God cares for them. God sees them. And God will, will uh, work powerfully in and through them, and God will sort it all out. So we don't have to defend God. We don't have to defend Jesus. We don't have to sort it all out. We don't have to prove that we're in the right and they're in the wrong. We just have to faithfully and humbly and loyally live for Jesus and share how the Spirit prompts us to pass on the truth about Jesus. And we can let God uh, bring to light what needs to be brought to light. We can let God sort out who's with him and who's against him. God will sort all that out, 
Our job is just to live genuinely, faithfully, fearlessly loyal to Jesus, whatever the cost.